may be seated. Thank you, Ellie, for reading our scripture earlier this morning. Uh, David Berberian told me that uh, C.S. Lewis apparently said that of all the Psalms, this Psalm, Psalm 19, is the greatest Psalm of all. So how's that for a little bit of pressure to um, preach on it? But uh, friends, it's great to get to be with you. My name is Charlie Dunn. Again, happy Father's Day to all of you who are uh, dads here with us this morning. And if you were with us last Sunday, you know that we kicked off this teaching series in the Old Testament book of Psalms. And the Psalms is like a collection of prayers, uh, many of which have been put to song and, and to music. I suppose you could say that the Psalms are kind of like an ancient Hebrew playlist. And uh, maybe some of you have your own playlists that you love to listen to. I know I've got a playlist that I especially like to listen to in the summer months. And one of the songs on that playlist uh, is a song by the Eli Young Band. Uh, it's a song called The Saltwater Gospel. I don't know if any of you have uh, heard that song before. Here's how it starts. Uh, it says, Every Sunday I see people filing in through those front doors, got a cross up on that steeple, yeah, it's time to praise the Lord. Some watch it on their TV sitting on the couch. Me, I get in my old Bronco and point those headlights out. Oh, ain't got too many miles to go to save my soul. Hey, I go down and sink my feet in the water and I soak up that sun and I watch it set. Yeah, I can feel the power of the saltwater gospel. I'm as close to God as I can get. And you know, I think in many ways, if David, who wrote Psalm 19, were to listen to this song from the Eli Young Band, I think in many ways he would say, you know, I think that the Eli Young Band gets this right. And you know, maybe you've had that experience out in nature before yourself. And if you get a little bit of time off this summer, I think this is the reason why some of you might be willing to get in your car and drive hundreds of miles, uh, just so that you can look at a snow-capped mountain in Colorado, or drive hundreds of miles so that you can just gaze on the vastness of an ocean, or so that you can leave the, the light pollution of the city and maybe look up on a night sky that is filled with stars. You know, nature has this way of evoking these feelings of wonder and awe and joy. And you see, the psalmist here in Psalm 19, he tells us why that is. He says, you want to know why sometimes nature seems to have this ability to move you and to stir you like a great work of art? You know the way that like a stirring piece of, of music can affect you or the way that maybe if you watch a movie or listen to kind of a, a tear-jerking story or you know the way that sometimes just a, a beautiful painting can, can affect you. The psalmist says you want to know why nature has the ability to affect you like a great work of art? He says the answer is because nature is a great work of art. That's where the psalmist begins in verse 1. He says, nature, creation, it's the work of God's hands. And he says, therefore, all of creation, it's like it's singing. It's, it's singing to us, we are not an accident. We are the product of the vision 
the design, the imagination, the creativity of an artist, an artist greater than any artist we have ever seen or known. Creation witnesses, it testifies to the fact that it was made. I have a friend of mine who recently got back from a trip to Yellowstone National Park. Uh, Maybe some of you have been there before. I've never uh, been there. And so I asked him, I said, tell me, what was it like? And he said, you know, before we went, we we looked up these pictures, and uh, here's one from uh, the National Park's website. He said, we saw these incredibly beautiful pictures. That's part of what inspired us to want to go. But he said, nothing could have prepared us for the beauty of what we got to behold. He said, we kept saying to each other, he and his wife, we kept saying, can you believe that this place actually exists? He said, it was like beholding a great work of art. Now, my friend is a Christian, so he knew what to do with those feelings of awe and wonder that he experienced in creation. You know, there was a sociologist um, named Peter Berger uh, who at one point thought that the world would cease to be religious. Eventually, he actually himself became a Christian, partially because he recognized there are what you might call signs of transcendence, signals of transcendence. These experiences where it's almost as if you, you, you feel the, this, this awe and wonder in a way that what you see seems to kind of point beyond itself to a realm that's unseen. These signals of transcendence. And you see, my friend, because he's a Christian, he knew what to do with those signals. When he felt that, that awe and that wonder in nature, he knew to respond with worship for it to lead him to praise the God who made creation. That's what nature is meant to do. It's meant to evoke in us this this worship and praise when we behold its beauty. But you know, even those who don't believe in God, even people who aren't convinced uh, that God exists, and, and you know, maybe some of you are in that place this morning. If you're not entirely sure, do I believe that there is a God or not? What the psalmist tells us is that in some sense, even those who don't intellectually believe in God, we can't escape the witness and the testimony of God's creation. Verse 2 says that God's creation pours forth speech. Verse 4 says, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. It's as if creation is continually speaking these words to us, saying, you are not an accident. People matters. Human life matters. Your life has meaning and purpose. And even if intellectually you would say, I don't believe there's a God, or intellectually you would say, I don't believe that there's a Bible, and you don't have any intellectual reason then to believe that life really matters, or to believe that people really matter, or to believe that your life really does have design and purpose, you can't ultimately escape living as if it does. Because that's the power of the witness of creation. Romans chapter 1 says, God makes himself known through the things that he has made. They testify to his power and his eternal glory and his beauty. And so in one sense, I think that that David, who wrote Psalm 19, he would look at the Eli Young Band song and he would say, yeah, the Eli Young Band, they get it right. There is a way in which nature can powerfully testify to the reality and the existence of the creator God. But at the same time, I think David would say, even as they get it right, they also get it terribly wrong. 
that in these lyrics, the Eli young man actually misses the rest of the story. Because look, look at these words again. He, he says, when I sink my feet in the water, when I'm gazing out on a beautiful sunset, he says, I'm as close to God as I can get. And you know, maybe some of you have heard that logic before from friends or family members who would say to you, look, I don't, I don't really need religion. I don't need Christianity. I don't need the scriptures. I don't need this stuff about Jesus. For me, when I'm riding my bike at White Rock Lake or when I'm out you know, looking at a sunset, when I'm playing golf, when I'm out in God's creation, that's when I feel closest to God. And I think David, the psalmist, would respond to that but by saying, absolutely, can nature tell you that God exists? Yes. Can nature tell you that God is glorious and powerful and beautiful? Absolutely. But nature cannot tell you that God is a God who loves you. Nature cannot bring you close to this God in a loving, intimate communion with him. Only scripture can do that. Look at the way that the psalmist um, contrasts uh, these different ways of using God's name. Derek Kidner, who's a commentator, um, pointed this out uh, to me as I was preparing for this. He says, you look at verses one through six of the psalm. When the psalmist is talking about God and his creation and the way that his creation testifies to him, he says the word for God, the name for God that he uses is this Hebrew name Elohim. It means a God who is transcendent and awesome and powerful. But he says the moment that the psalmist starts talking about the scriptures, when he starts talking about the word of God, what he calls God's law, his decrees, his precepts, these are all synonyms for talking about the Bible, the scriptures. He uses a different name for God. It's that name that we see in our translation all capitalized, L-O-R-D. It's the Hebrew name Yahweh. And you know, that was the personal name that God gave to his people when he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Moses said, who should I say is sending me to redeem your people out of Egypt? He says, tell them that Yahweh is sending you. Yahweh was the covenant name of God. It was the name that he gave to his people Israel as he entered this loving covenant relationship with them. And you see, what the psalmist is showing us, even in the way that he uses these different names of God, then is he's saying, look, if you want to know that God is powerful, if you want to know that God exists, look no further than his creation. But if you want to know that God loves you, if you want an intimate, personal communion with the living God, you're only going to find that in the scriptures where God reveals himself to us in his word. Maybe some of you have heard before of a lady named Annie Dillard. Anybody heard of Annie Dillard before? In the 1970s, uh, she um, had this desire to connect with God. She was not a Christian, but she thought, you know, I want to experience the loving presence of God. So she decided to go to this really beautiful place called Tinker Creek. Um, it's in Virginia. You can see a, a picture there. And she thought, if I can just spend some time in creation, I'll be able to connect with the divine. And, and she ended up writing a book about her experience. It was called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. It won a Pulitzer Prize. And, and what she found shocked her. In that time that she spent in God's creation, because she said, yeah, creation, nature is beautiful. 
But she said nature is also incredibly violent. She began to recognize that nature is pretty tooth and claw. It's survival of the fittest. She watched as some animals preyed on weaker animals. She saw as, you know, one animal would get sick in the pack and the other animals would, would, would end up uh, turning on it and attacking it. She saw a, a water bug come and suck the brains out of a frog on the water. She said that horrified her. She thought nature is beautiful, but it's also violent. There are sunsets and snow-capped mountains, but there are also volcanoes and hurricanes and tornadoes. And what she discovered is that nature cannot tell you that there is a God who loves you. History cannot tell you that there is a God who loves you. History is full of injustice and warfare and slavery and violence. Other religions won't even tell you about a God who loves you. I had a friend of mine who grew up as a very devout Muslim in Turkey. He said when he eventually became a Christian, he said it was such a, a, a paradigm shift for him because he said we would say that Allah is merciful, but you would never say that Allah loves you or wants a personal, intimate relationship with you. Friends, the only way that we ever got that notion of God is through the scriptures. It's through God's word. And you see, that is what is able to refresh your soul. Knowing God in that way. Did you notice that's what, what David says in verse 7? He says, the scriptures, they refresh the soul. There's a commentator who, who says that, that the soul means your identity. Meaning, if you want to know who you are, you want to discover who you are, you're not just going to find that in creation. If you want who you are in Jesus, even if you are a Christian, if you want to be revived and refreshed in your identity in Jesus, that's going to happen primarily through God's word. And frankly, if that weren't the case, we would not be doing a series on the book of Psalms. We wouldn't be encouraging you to, to pray through the book of Psalms in the course of the week. We would say, look, just go out to White Rock Lake or go on a vacation or get a little bit more time outdoors this summer. The reason why we preach God's word and we encourage you to have that daily communion with God in his word is because that is the primary way that we're able to experience loving communion with God and for our souls to be daily refreshed as we spend time with God in his word. And the Psalms are probably the best entry point to learn how to do that. So for the rest of the time this morning, I just want to share briefly um, how, how do you read the Bible, and in particular the Psalms, in a way that fosters this loving communion with God? How do you read the Bible in a way where you walk away and your soul is revitalized and refreshed? Because I know, frankly, some of you have probably tried opening up the Bible before, and you don't walk away feeling like you've had this loving communion with God. Maybe you don't feel like you're refreshed and revitalized. So how do you learn to read the Bible in that way? I want to show us from Psalm 19. I want to show you there are two postures that you're going to need to embrace, and then there are two practices to learn to employ. So let's walk through those together. Here they are. First, two postures to embrace. The first posture is to expect for God to speak to you through his word. Did you notice all throughout this psalm, we're told that God loves to speak. He wants to make himself known. 
He wants to reveal himself, both through his world and through his word. God is a God who loves to communicate and to make himself known. And so therefore, when you come to scripture, when you come to any of these psalms that we're studying this summer, what you want to do is you want to come with this posture of expectation that God is going to speak to you through it. You can't read a psalm and you can't read the Bible the way that you would read an email for work. You can't read it the same way that you would read an assignment for school or an article that you're scrolling through on your phone just reading for information and understanding. You want to read it with an expectation that the king of the universe is going to speak to you through it. And so I would suggest don't even open the Bible. Don't even begin to read the Bible until you first pray this very simple prayer. God, speak for your servant is listening. It's what verse 9 of this psalm calls the fear of the Lord. This posture of believing, God, you are there and you're not silent and you want to speak to me through the very words that you inspired. So there's the first posture, expecting that God will speak to you through his word. Here's the second one. You've got to affirm that what God tells you in his word is going to be for your good. That it's meant for your flourishing, even when it may not initially appear that way. Um, Did you notice uh, the way in which the psalmist describes God's word? It's just this overflowing, over-the-top kind of positive description. He says, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. God's words are sweeter than honey. I, I don't know about you, but when I read scripture, that's not always the way that I react to it. That's not always the way that I feel about it, particularly when it comes to God's commands, when he is telling me how he wants me to live my life. Because I know God's word says I'm supposed to forgive, but often I would rather hold on to bitterness or think about how to get back at someone. God's word tells me that I'm supposed to be honest, to always tell the truth, but sometimes it seems like if I shade the truth, it's going to be more in my interest. I know that God's word says I'm supposed to put the interests of other people ahead of my own, but then I think what's in it for me. I know that God's word says that I'm supposed to be very generous with my resources, but then I wonder, is there going to be enough left over for me? And often I find then that God's commands, um, initially they seem more like bitter pills to swallow uh, than they do like, you know, sweet dripping honeycomb. And yet here's the thing, if you want to commune with God through his word, you have to come with this expectation that God knows what is for your good. That his laws, his commands, they're not arbitrary. They're not meant to to, to be, you know, sucking your life of joy and happiness. God's not a cosmic killjoy. God wants the best for you. He wants for you to flourish. Sometimes we actually get to see that through experience. You know, um, doctors would tell us if you harbor bitterness, there's nothing that causes more heart disease than anger. If you hold on to that anger, right, it's going to eventually be bad for your physical being, uh, much less for your soul. It's good to forgive. We know that if you're dishonest, eventually those lies will catch up to you or you'll be afraid that they will, that somebody will find you out or you'll be mistrustful towards other people. It's good for us to be people of integrity. 
And if you want a lasting relationship with somebody, you've got to learn to put their needs and interests ahead of your own, and that leads to real intimacy and flourishing in that. Sometimes we get to see the way that God's law actually really is meant for our good. But listen, here's the thing, friends. If God made this world, as the psalmist says, if he is the artist who created and designed the world and he made our hearts, don't you think he knows how we were made to flourish? And therefore, that when we align our lives with his commands that it does generally lead to our good, and when we push against that, it leads to breakdown. And I think a lot of you in this room could attest to that. You could attest to the way that when you started saying yes to what God's word says yes to, and when you started saying no to what God's word says no to, that it revived your marriage, that it revived your work life, that it revived your identity, it revived your self-esteem and your soul because God's word and his commands are for our good. And so what it means to have this posture when you come to the Bible then is, is do you come to it with this posture of judgment and criticism and saying, okay, what am I gonna take and what am I not gonna take? Or do you come with the humility of being able to say, okay, God, you know what's best for my life. Do you stand over his word or do you sit under it and allow him to speak to you through it? Two postures to embrace. Expect him to speak to you and then come affirming that he knows what's best for you. But then two practices to learn to employ. And I say practices because they do take practice. It'll take time to learn these. Don't expect to just apply this tomorrow and immediately uh, have it lead to this deep communion with God. But I promise you, these two practices um, will facilitate um, this deeper intimacy with God. Here they are. Here's the first one. You've got to learn how to answer God in prayer. Anybody ever heard the term before, answering prayer? It was coined by a guy named Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was somebody who knew and prayed the Psalms inside and out. In fact, um, Bono, uh, the lead singer for U2, actually became a Christian uh, by reading Eugene Peterson's writings about the Psalms. And, and there's a great video, by the way, on YouTube if you want to watch Eugene Peterson and, and Bono talking about the Psalms. But um, Eugene Peterson coined this idea of answering prayer. And, and where that comes from is he says, look, in any conversation... Um, there are certain dynamics to a conversation. So if you and I get to have a conversation maybe on the way out of church this morning, if I know that you're a golf fan and I say, hey, who do you think is going to win um, the U.S. Open today? Um, that sets the direction for the conversation. Right now we're talking about golf and that's probably how the other person is going to respond to that question. That sets the direction for it. It doesn't mean if we talk for long enough that maybe you can't change the conversation topic to something else. But, you know, whoever starts the conversation, whoever asks that initial question, actually has a lot of power um, over where the conversation is going to go, over the topic and the tone and the subject matter for it. Does that make sense? And so Eugene Peterson says, look, the same thing is true when it comes uh, to prayer. He says, there are prayers, and you do see these in the Psalms, which you might call calling prayer, where we start the conversation, right? We cry out to God and we say, God, I need you. God, would you help me? God, I've got a problem. Would you come through for me in this way? God, I want to believe that you're there. Would you reveal yourself uh, to me? These are what he would call calling prayer. We're starting the conversation. There's nothing wrong with that kind of prayer. But Peterson says the kind of prayer 
that's gonna grow you fastest and deepest, that's gonna help you really understand your heart and bring you into the heart of God, that's gonna turn you into the kind of person John talked about last week in Psalm 1, remember? The person who is like a tree planted in streams of water that bears fruit in and out of season. The kind of prayer that's gonna grow you fastest and deepest is answering prayer. It's the kind of prayer where God gets to start the conversation in his word. God sets the tone. God sets the direction for the conversation as you read his word. And by the way, you see this playing out here in Psalm 19. I didn't notice this until I was studying for the sermon this week, but look at this. The first 10 verses of the psalm, the psalmist is talking about God. He's saying, here's who God is. Here's how he reveals himself in creation. Here's how he reveals himself in scripture. But beginning in verse 11, suddenly now he's talking to God, right? He says, God, would you forgive me? God, who can discern his errors? God, keep me from willful sins. God, would the meditation of my heart and, and, the, and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight? My rock, my redeemer. He goes from talking about God to now starting to talk to God starting to answer God, starting to respond to God. Friends, I think for a lot of us, a lot of our um, time um, in the scriptures or in praying tends to be one-way conversation. So either we're people who love to read the Bible, to study the Bible, right? We let God start the conversation, but we never answer him. We never start talking directly to him about the things that we're reading in his word. We just read it and then move on. Or we're people who start the conversation. We love to pray and we pray to God about various different needs and topics, but we're starting the conversation, but we're never giving God a chance to speak. We're having one-way conversation. And you see, answering prayer, what's so great about the Psalms is they teach us a lot about answering prayer. Answering prayer is two-way conversation with God. So what that means is you, you read a Psalm and then you think about it. You meditate on it. And if there's something that God says that's praiseworthy, you stop and you praise him. You don't just move on. You say, God, this is amazing that you speak to us through your creation. Thank you that you're a God who wants to reveal yourself to us through your word. Thank you that your word is meant for our good. If you read that, you don't just think, hey, that's interesting. You stop and you praise him. Or if you read something that's convicting, God, who can discern his errors? If you read something that you're like, wow, I guess I have been being pretty selfish or I have been being greedy or I have been self-righteous. If it convicts you, confess it. Stop and confess that to God. If you read something that you say, gosh, I wish I had that more. Like, I wish I looked at the Bible more the way that David looks at the Bible. God, teach me to value and love your word in that way. You ask him for it. You answer him as he speaks to you in his word. And you see, that's the kind of prayer that grows us fastest, that leads to loving communion with God. And that's part of the reason why, by the way, I love that devotional. Um, the Songs of Jesus uh, by Tim and Kathy Keller. We've got more copies if you didn't grab one last Sunday. I would encourage everybody, grab one of those because what the format of that devotional is, is it's teaching you to, 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 to commune with God in this way. It starts with reading the psalm, then a meditation, reflecting on what does this mean, and then a prayer. 
praying and answering God based on what you've read. And that's just a way to learn how to do that. Maybe you start with Keller's meditation on the psalm, but then you use the journal and you, you move on and you do your own meditation. And you write down, what do I think God is saying to me through his word? And then you pray that and you answer him um, and respond. Answering prayer. Do you know how to do that um, kind of, of praying and interacting with God and his word? And then here's the last thing. Um, not just to learn how to answer God in prayer, but to learn to read for the Redeemer. Do you know how to read for the Redeemer? So I, I've talked to a number of people who've told me that when they start reading the Bible, um, initially they're really excited about it. And initially maybe they read about the life of Jesus and they see, wow, Jesus is incredible. He's so kind and compassionate. He's courageous and he's wise and, and he loves people so well. And, and, and you read that and you think, gosh, that's the kind of person I want to become. But the more that you read scripture, maybe you find that you actually start to see how far you fall short of living up to God's law. You know, David speaks so positively, positively of God's commands and his law, but, but maybe you begin to experience just like David, who can discern his errors you know, I think, I think essentially what David is saying is he says, God, keep me from willful sins. Essentially, he's saying, look, God, I can only hope to be kept from the sins that I know about, but I know there are all these other characteristic patterns of, of greed or self-righteousness or pride in my life. I don't even see those. And, and so maybe as you read the Bible, you begin to feel discouraged. You begin to feel down on yourself because you think, I could never live up to the person that God is calling me to be. I think that's David's experience even in this psalm. And yet, what does David say at the end of the psalm? He says, God, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And when he says pleasing, you know that word pleasing? In the Old Testament, it's the word that's always used to describe a sacrifice, the sacrifices that would be brought into the temple. And those sacrifices, they had to be perfect. They could not have a single blemish. And, and you might say, well, gosh, how could David, who knows that he is a sinner, who knows he doesn't live up to God's law, he's just said that. How could he have the audacity to believe then that even the meditation of his heart would be pleasing in the sight of God? And the answer is because he knows that God is his redeemer. He says, God, you are my rock and my redeemer. A redeemer is somebody who rescues you at great cost to themselves. And you see, David knew very generally that God was his redeemer. You and I, we can know that very specifically, very tangibly. We can know that Jesus is our redeemer. Listen to the way that Paul describes this in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, he redeemed us in order that the blessing of the law might come to us through Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It means that on the cross, Jesus took the curse for disobeying God's law that we deserve. The psalmist says that there is great reward in keeping God's law. But the corollary of that is there's also punishment for disobeying God's law. But Paul says, look, Jesus took that punishment. 
He took the curse so that we could receive the reward, so that we could receive the blessing and the reward that's due to him. He's our redeemer. And do you know how to read the Bible for your redeemer? What that means is, do you know how to look at any passage of scripture and to say, how does this scripture either show me my need for a redeemer or how does it show me how Jesus has met that need for me, how he has been my redeemer? It's another reason I love that, that Keller devotional so much is I think he teaches us how to read scripture looking for Jesus in that way. And look, when you read the Bible knowing you have a redeemer, it drains all of the shame. It drains all of the fear. Because you know that the Bible can't condemn you. Jesus was already condemned for you. You already have a redeemer, so you don't have to be afraid of the Bible convicting you and exposing places in your life that need to change. More than that, you might actually find that your heart starts to change, where you begin to want to obey God. You want to please him. You delight to do his will because you want to please the one who would give his life at such great cost for you. Do you know how to read for the redeemer? And friends, let me suggest that, that if you learn to embrace these postures and if you learn to employ these practices, it can lead you into a daily deep communion with the living God to expect that he's gonna speak to you, to affirm that he knows what's best for you, to learn to answer him in prayer in response to what he says in his word, and then to read for your redeemer knowing that you are already forgiven and beloved and accepted through Jesus. So let's pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning and, and let's pray in a way where we are answering God in response to this psalm in Psalm 19. God, we thank you that you are there and that you are not silent. We thank you for the ways that you reveal yourself to us through your world and for the way that the beauty and, and, and the, the, the glory of your creation witnesses to who you are. We pray that we would not be people who miss that, but when we experience the beauty of your creation, that it would move us to worship. But God, we thank you that you haven't just revealed yourself generally as our creator, but that you have um, revealed yourself to us through your word that you want this intimate, personal relationship with us. God, we pray that we would take advantage of the scriptures that you have given to us, that we would use the Psalms as a means to commune with you, that you would refresh our souls as we do. God, would you teach us to answer you, to respond to you as we read in your word. And you help us to know what it means to read for our Redeemer. We thank you that we can trust and believe that the words of our heart, the words of our mouths, they are acceptable and pleasing in your sight, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you that we have a redeemer and that gives us confidence to want to commune with you in your word, to want to be people who delight to obey you. We pray that you would display visually that costly love that you have for us even as we come to the Lord's table this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray.